You can turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're just doing a couple um, short messages, a little series on Christmas. So the Gospel of John. I want to ask you this question. When do you think Christmas began? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought about that? Um, I'm not necessarily referring to uh, the celebration of Jesus' birth, what we know to be Christmas on December 25th, because we don't know exactly when he was born. That could be a good date. It may not be. Um, scholars disagree on that. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't say. And so we would just be speculating if we were to guess at it. But I'm asking kind of a different question this morning of you. I want you to think of the question, when did the earthly life of Jesus Christ begin? With that in mind, I want us to read John chapter 1. Did I say 14? John chapter 1. I'm sorry. John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That takes us back even before Bethlehem. (laughs) Very simply to the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. Christmas began not in Bethlehem, as we're so taught in the little manger, but really it began nine months before. When the Holy Spirit, the Word of God says, overshadowed Mary and gave her a divine human person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it says this, And the angel answered her, answering Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's interesting that Christmas began in the womb of a virgin girl, a young girl. God spent his first nine months on earth as a pre-born baby. If you ever thought about that, but that's true. Fully alive, fully human, fully God. That's why in a lot of the ancient creeds, it affirms that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He didn't become the God-man at Bethlehem. He was God incarnate from the moment of conception. Now you may look at John 1.14 and say, well, it's kind of a iffy Christmas text, but you know what? The truth behind the story of the angels, the truth behind the story of the shepherds, the truth behind the story of the wise men and their journey to to Bethlehem all starts right here. Without this verse, the rest of the story has no meaning whatsoever. Our text tells us that what really happened 2,000 years ago, and it, it tells us what it means for us today as well. Uh, Verse 14 is probably the most concise statement, biblically, of the incarnation 
And it's probably one of the most significant verses throughout all of Scripture. Those four words, the Word became flesh. It really speaks to our hearts the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God taking on humanity. The infinite becoming finite. Eternity entered all time. The invisible becoming visible. The very creator who created everything enters into his creation. Now, this isn't the first time that God revealed himself to mankind. Uh, God reveals himself throughout scripture. Um, Romans tells us in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. We're going to be looking at these verses after the first of the year sometime. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust in their lust of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen God revealed himself to man through creation. When you go outside and you look around, hopefully you look and say, man, this is beautiful. It just didn't happen. There's a purpose. There's a creator. There's a designer. Also, God reveals himself to man in the Old Testament, throughout, throughout scriptures in the Old Testament. Even in, uh, it's referred to in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, says, all scripture is breathed out of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training of righteousness. Second Peter tells us that men were moved by the Holy Spirit to record his word. He revealed himself through these men in written word, and we all have a copy of it. I forget what preacher it is, but when he preaches, he always tells the folks... Turn in your own personal copy of God's Word, too. <laughs> Just making an emphasis that, you know what? You're, you're blessed to have a personal copy of God's inerrant Word to hold, to study, to read, to ponder. He revealed Himself throughout all the Old Testament Scriptures, but Christ, or God also revealed Himself most supremely, supremely probably, in, through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 1, 
verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. Verse 2 says, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. It says that God has spoken to us in a myriad of ways in the past, but now He has spoken to us. It's done. It's over. The canon is complete. We don't need to look for new revelation from God. The record of Christ's life, the record of Christ's work, its applications and significance has a significant for the past, the present, and the future. I mean, when you talk about the word to both Greeks and Jews, there's, there's really a, a deep meaning there. Um, John here clearly stated that he implied earlier in the, in the book of John, Jesus Christ, who is God's final word, that he became flesh. That's the word. He is the word. That word flesh, it doesn't really have a negative moral connotation. Sometimes as Christians, we think of something fleshly as something, we think of it as negative, as sinful. And that's true sometimes, most times. But the word itself doesn't carry that negativeness it's it's dictated to it by the the context here it refers to man's physical being that he actually became flesh it it affirms christ's full humanity some people say well jesus christ was part god part man no he wasn't he was all god all man and that's what this first point here speaks of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. I mean, the whole truth about Christmas is really contained in this one phrase, the word became flesh. It's so important that when you hear those words, you may not really understand the full meaning of it. If I asked you, hey, I'm thinking of a word right now. Guess what it is? You say, what? Just guess. Go ahead, guess. And you start guessing. No, 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 it's not that. It's not that. Finally, what are you thinking of? I'm thinking of radishes. <laughs> the only way you could ever guess that is if I gave you a description. You know, that's what, uh, you play that game, right? Charades. You ever play that game? You act out everything and you can't talk. At least you're not supposed to. And then you guess what that, that word is. Well, that's what, that's what God did here. He didn't have us guessing about, what, what, what are you talking about? The word became flesh. No, he sent the word to us in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's word made flesh. And now we know what God was thinking when he tried to communicate his love to us. Jesus is the visible word of God. He's God in human flesh. That's what we call the incarnation. It's hard to understand. There's a lot of debates going on about the incarnation. Even in the early church, there were debates about it. Some people said that Jesus really wasn't a man because how could God become a man? That doesn't make any sense. He just looked like a man. 
Maybe he was kind of like a ghost or something. Others said that he had the body of a man, but he didn't have a human soul. Still others said that Jesus was two people in one body, kind of half God, half man. And unbelievers just said it's impossible, it's, it's a bunch of, it's ridiculous to even believe any of that. And they didn't believe Jesus was God at all. They claimed he was an ordinary person, just like you and me, with a sin nature, just like everybody else on planet Earth. Unfortunately, all those things are wrong. When Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, the infinite God took on the form of a tiny unborn baby. Eternal God added humanity. I mean, that's an incredible miracle. I mean, take aside the the part that he was born of a virgin. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself. But the fact that God became man. Incredible. No one can say really how it happened or even how God can become man without ceasing to be God. I don't understand that. He added manhood, but he didn't subtract any deity. He was fully God. He was fully man, the God-man. The almightiness of God moved in a, a human arm. The almightiness of God now through love in a human heart. The wisdom of God spoke through human lips. The mercy of God reached out through human hands. I mean, God was always a God of love, but when Jesus came to earth, love was wrapped all of a sudden in human flesh. That's what the incarnation is all about. One preacher tells a story of an ant farm. If you had an ant farm and you really loved those ants, How could you communicate your love to those ants in that little ant farm? I mean, you could tell them, but they're not going to understand you. I mean, I speak English, don't speak ant, whatever that might be. (laughs) They wouldn't understand you. I could write them a letter, oh, ants, I love you so much, but they're not going to be able to read it. I could even maybe shrink myself down to ant size (laughs) that they wouldn't recognize me but somehow if I had superhuman supernatural powers there's one thing that I could do I could take on the form of an ant (laughs) be born as an ant live as an ant communicate like an ant then I bet I could find a way to say I love you to them see that's what God did he he didn't mail a letter he didn't shout it from heaven He did the one thing, the one thing that we could understand. God himself came down and he entered our human race. He became just like us. So that forever we would hear him say, I love you. I mean, I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't have had Christ born in a little manger. I would have had a news flash and a big parade and make a big deal about it and maybe even sell some tickets and make some money in it. Hey, God's coming to earth. Come see the show. But that's not what God did. When you read through the New Testament, instead of this 
flash and splash kind of a marketing schemes that we have today. Here you have in the, the Christmas story this frightened father. I mean, think about it. You're a father. Your wife's pregnant, near birth, near, near ready to give birth. Dax, think about this. <laughs> right? Any, any moment now we're expecting a little baby to come out of there. But think if you were homeless. Think if you had no place to stay. If you had no hospital to go to. I think you might be a little fearful for your family, for your wife, for your unborn child. Think of the exhausted mother. Mary, walking, walking. Where are we going? Hopefully we'll find a place to stay tonight. They end up in a dirty stable. It's winter time. Rags for diapers. In a mere feeding trough. There he is, ignored by the, the mighty, ignored by the powerful. This tiny, helpless little baby. Emmanuel. God with us. It's, it's such a, a simple approach you know it has to be true. Only God would have done it that way. I remember talking to an individual one day about Christ and shared the gospel with them and said, I don't believe any of that stuff. He said, I'd, I'd believe God if he came down and stood right in my front porch and told me he was God. Then maybe I'd believe it. I remember telling him, hey, you know what? He's already done that. <laughs> he did it 2,000 years ago. He came down. He lived among us. If you don't believe that, then sorry, I can't help you. That song we sang this morning by Charles Wesley captured the wonder of the incarnation when he said, Christ by heaven, highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Listen, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The incarnation. What an what a incredible miracle. What an incredible gift God has given to us. Well, secondly, not only do I want us to look at the incarnation, but I want us to look at habitation. Because he says there that he not only came and took on flesh, but it says that he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. One translation says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> For 33 years, God moved into our neighborhood. The NIV says that he made his dwelling among us. Some translations say that he pitched his tent among us. That's probably very accurate. That's really what that Greek word means. It, it's, it, it talks of make, made his dwelling, literally pitching a tent. You ever gone camping? You get out to the campsite and you get the tent out and you pitch your tent. I mean, it's probably the first thing you do, so you have shelter, right? I was younger, we used to go camping, and I never took a tent. I'd just sleep out on the ground. 
with a sleeping bag. I'm not one for camping. I'm not big on that. I like to go out and maybe be in the wilderness and maybe sleep under the stars. But in the morning, you know what? I need a shower. I need to get up and take a hot shower. And hey, if I got a camping place that's got that, I'm good to go. But I'm not one of these guys that can go out. My nephew, Luke, is taking his daughter and he's hiking, I think, 300 miles this next summer of the, uh, the trail, the wilderness trail that goes up and down California. Um, the John Muir Trail, I think it's called. And for days, they're just going to be out in the middle. I just, I couldn't do that, you know. Here's what Jesus did. He came, he left all the glory, all the comfort of home in heaven, and he pitched his tent down here. He dwelt among us for 33 years. See, it wasn't just a simple little appearance. I mean, God could have said, okay, just go down there for the day and kind of show your face, and then I'll bring you back home. Or go down and die, and we'll just kind of wrap this all up in 24 hours, and you'll be back home, no problem. He could have done it that way, but he didn't. He sent Jesus down to be born of this, 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 this simple woman, this simple virgin girl, and then to, to live as a baby and a young teenager and a young man and a man for 33 years here among us. He just didn't show up. He didn't make a, a mere appearance. I remember one time talking with some other pastors in Redwood City and they were telling me that they're, they were going to come to one of the conferences we had and, and I said okay fine you know so they it was a Friday Saturday one of the prophecy conferences and they showed up on a Friday night and they sat down and uh, talked to them a little bit and they said oh, we just have to let you know that uh, you know, we can just stay for the first song <laughs> and then we got to go I'm like oh okay that's fine you know where are you going well, we got to go to brother so-and-so's church, and then after we show up there, we got to go to brother, sister, so-and-so. And they were just kind of running around making appearances at churches. I don't know why. didn't make any sense to me. Maybe because they promised to come, they wanted to at least show up. Jesus didn't do that. He just didn't show up and, and say, hey, I'm here. <laughs> he lived among us. Philippians 2.7 says that he took on all the essential attributes of humanity. And it says that he was made in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2.14 tells us, since the child shared in children, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He took of the same, the flesh and blood. In Hebrews 2.17, the writer of Hebrews says, He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He pitched his tent among us. He lived with us. Sometimes I remember going down to Mexico and taking some youth groups down there. And when I was a little older and I kind of reflected on some of the trips we took, I mean, I, I kind of thought, you know what? We were probably more of a pain to these poor people than we were a help. They show up with 30, 40 kids and, hey, we're here to whatever, you know. 
had, you know, paint their building or whatever, and then, see you later. You know, and then we used to stop at Disneyland on the way home after we seen his poverty down there as kind of a reward for the kids. And I thought, what was I thinking? You know, and I'm sure those people thought, yeah, those Americans, they come down here and you know, do a little flash in the thing, make an appearance for a weekend or a week, and then see you later. We don't hear about them again until they want to come down again. How sad is that? Christ didn't do that. God didn't do that. Jesus Christ's humanity was not just a mere appearance. It's the same word there when it says he pitched his tent among us, he dwelt among us, that's used in the Old Testament when they used the tabernacle. And that was the the tent for the glory of God that dwelt in it before the temple was built in Jerusalem. The tabernacle in the Old Testament in Exodus 33 was sometimes called the tent of meeting. Because it was, it was the divinely appointed meeting place between God and man. In the Old Testament, God tented with Israel through his glorious presence in the tabernacle. And then later, in the temple. He revealed himself in some even pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. And throughout eternity, God will again tent with his redeemed and glorified people. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 to 4. It says, Throughout eternity, God will again tent with his... Or, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying... Here's what it says in Revelation. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell, same word, among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. See, in a very real way, Jesus is the place where we meet God today. In the Bible, three kinds of people lived in tents. First of all, you had the shepherds. They were kind of the bottom of the rung, as far as society goes. Nobody liked shepherds. They stunk like they're animals, and they're just kind of nomads. And you had sojourners, travelers, who lived in tents. And you also had soldiers who lived in tents. And they all lived in tents. You know why? Because they never stayed in one place very long. They were only there for a short period of time. See, Jesus lived in a tent here in a human body, in his humanity, for 33 years on earth. And he did so because he was a shepherd. He was a sojourner. He was a soldier. He came to be the good shepherd. He came as the visitor from heaven. He came as the captain of our salvation, defeat, to defeat death and the devil once for all. I mean, think of it this way. Jesus was God's rescue mission to the human race. That's really what he was. He came on a mission from God. And when his mission was over, he went back to heaven. While he was there, he pitched his tent among us when he was here on earth. When his time was up, he folded up his tent, his human flesh, and he rejoined his Father in heaven. 
He habitated among us. Thirdly, manifestation. This verse also speaks of the manifestation. It says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus Christ was a manifestation of the glory of God while he was here on earth. Uh, Through Jesus, God manifested divine glory during his earthly life. And it was done so in, in such a way that's never been done before. It was still veiled by his human flesh, and yet it was still there. Peter, James, and John saw a a physical manifestation of the glory of God through Jesus at the transfiguration, Matthew 17. It says, his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. That was just a little tidbit, just a little preview of the unveiled glory to be seen at his return. In the fullness of his heavenly glory in the new Jerusalem. But the disciples here, they saw Jesus manifest God's holy nature by displaying divine attributes such as truth, wisdom, love, grace, knowledge, power, holiness, One writer says, we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son. See, even on earth we understand that when you see a father and a son, you say, hey, I like father, like son. We get that principle. But with Jesus, that principle has taken it to infinite perfection. Despite the claims of false teachers through the centuries, that, that word, they're only begotten, doesn't imply that Jesus was created by God and therefore he's not eternal. That's not what it's saying. The term doesn't refer to a person's origin. It describes him as unique. The only one of its kind. That's why Isaac could properly be called Abraham's only begotten even though he had other sons. Because Isaac alone was the son of the covenant. And so that word used of Christ says that, you know what? He's the unique son of God who comes to earth. He's different, set apart. Westcott writes this. He says, Christ is the one and only son, the one to whom the little, the title belongs in a sense completely unique and singular as distinguished from that in which there are many children of God. See, Jesus' unique relationship to the Father is a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. Speaks of him as the exact image of his Father. That's why in John 14, 9, it says, if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. When John says we have seen him, He uses a word that means that we gaze intently upon. It's not just a casual glance. That's not what he's talking about. It's a phrase that's used when they take something in a laboratory and they study it. They look at it under the microscope. It's the word from which we get the English word theater. 
As Jesus walked on earth, people could see God's glory shining through him. The shepherds saw it, so did the angels. So did the the doctors of the law who were interviewing him even when he was 12 years old in the temple, the synagogue. The glory was seen in a major way at the transfiguration. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. Even when Jesus turned the, the water into wine at Cana of Galilee, John says in John 2.11, He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, he wasn't invisible. He wasn't obscure. When you look at at Jesus, you see the face of God. Martin Luther put it this way. He whom the world could not enwrap, yonder lies in Mary's lap. He has become an infant small who by his might upholdeth all. Christ came down to manifest the glory of God before us. And the last thing I see here in John 1.14 is basically invitation. <laughs> An invitation. That one verse really ends with the idea that Jesus came to earth and it says that he came full of grace and truth. One translation says this, that he was generous inside and out, true from start to finish. In our world today, when you see grace or you see truth, not very often do they appear together. As humans, I think we we have a problem with having those two words side by side. Um, Because if we stress grace, then a lot of times we're too quick to forgive without demanding any kind of repentance or remorse over sin. But if we stress truth, then a lot of times we're accused of being harsh or unforgiving. But you know what? The, The reality is we need both, don't we? We need grace and truth. And those two words explain why Jesus came to earth. They go really to the very heart of the gospel message. Those two attributes most closely connected with salvation are simply grace and truth. Scripture teaches us that salvation is holy by believing God's truth. The truth of the gospel And you receive that truth by his saving grace. In Acts chapter 15, verse 11, the Jerusalem council said this, but we believe that we, Jewish believers, as we were talking about, are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way the Gentiles are. In Acts chapter 18, verse 27, Apollo said, greatly helped those who had believed through grace. 
Acts 20, 24, Paul describes the message he preached as the gospel of the grace of God. In Romans 3, 24, he wrote that believers are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And even in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of what? His grace. And in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we know that those verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. Even in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he reminded Timothy that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We just finished Titus, study through Titus, Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's going to result, beloved, in all believers, all those who are believing in Christ, to be justified, Titus 3.7, by his grace, that we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, there's no salvation, grace, except to those who believe the truth of the gospel. They have to go together. You don't get saved by grace if you're refusing to believe the truth of the gospel. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, that's what he says, the gospel of your salvation Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's the message of truth. Truth matters. Colossians 1.5 defines the gospel as the word of truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul's thanking them. He says, for God has chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. People are saved when they come to a knowledge of the truth. On the negative side, 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says, those who perish will do so because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 says, "Everyone everyone will be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. See, Jesus Christ is the full expression of God's grace. All the necessary truth to save is available in him. And he was the full expression of God's truth. Up to that point, it was only partially revealed through the Old Testament. You had foreshadowing of Christ through prophecies, through different types, pictures. And that all came to fruition when Christ took on that form of a human baby, a human being, a baby born in Bethlehem. That's why Christ could say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. 
See, a vague belief in God apart from the truth about Christ will not result in salvation. That's just the way it is. I hear a lot of people, well, I believe in God. Well, that's okay, that's, that's fine. I'm glad you're, you don't just throw them out totally. You're not an atheist. But you know what? Just believing in God doesn't get you salvation. You have to believe in God and what he says about himself and about his son. Jesus even said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. See, those who they think they are worshiping God, but really are ignorant of, or even they reject the fullness of the New Testament teaching about Christ, they're deceived. John 5, 23 says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The unfortunate thing is those who reject God's full revelation of himself through Jesus Christ will be eternally lost. They will spend all eternity in a place called hell. Very real place. Very real torment judgment under the mighty hand of God. But because he was full of grace, the good news is he died for you and me. Scripture says, while we were still yet sinners. In other words, God doesn't say, you know what, I'll save you, but man, you're a mess. You've got to clean yourself up. Doesn't do that. Because he was full of truth, he was able to pay for our sins completely. He was perfect. He was sinless in every way. He forgives the sinner because he himself, the Bible says, bore that sin on the tree. You know what? This is good news for people like us because he is graceful. You you can come just as you are to God. He's easy to approach. You don't have to clean yourself up first. I mean, we all have a past. We all have some dirt here, there in our lives. And that's precisely the point that the gospel message becomes so relevant because we, we're all in this boat together. And it, it's, it's wonderful to be able to say no matter how dark or checkered your past may be, no matter how many sins you've committed, The Lord Jesus Christ stands before you and he invites you to come to him just as you are. With no preconditions. Except a sincere, sincere, heartfelt desire to be forgiven. When you do, the Bible says that you will be abundantly pardoned. Because he is graceful, he is truthful. You can come in complete confidence that he will keep his promises. When he promises, beloved, a complete pardon for your sin, he means it. Ask yourself this question Do you need a trustworthy Savior? Fear not. He's the one. Jesus is full of truth. Do you need a forgiving Lord? 
The Bible says that we're to come to him because he is full of grace. Harry Ironside used to tell a story of Tsar Nicholas I of Russia. And it seems that the Tsar had this good friend who asked him to provide a job for his son who was unemployed. And the Tsar did just that, appointing his friend's son as paymaster for a barracks in the Russian army. Unfortunately, it turned out that the son was pretty weak morally, (laughs) and pretty soon he gambled away nearly all the money that was entrusted to him as paymaster of this barracks. And then the day came when word came to the son that the auditors were coming. They wanted to examine his records. And the poor young man was in despair, as you can imagine, knowing that he was going to be found out. The story says that he calculated the amount he owed, and the total came up to this huge debt, huge amount, far greater than he could ever repay. He determined the night before the auditors arrived, he would take his gun and he would commit suicide at midnight. Before going to bed, he wrote a full page confession, listing all that he had stolen. Writing underneath in these words, he wrote, a great debt, who can pay? Weary from all his exertions, he actually fell asleep. Well, later that night, the czar himself paid a surprise visit to the barracks, as was his occasional custom. And seeing a light on, he peered into the room and he found the young man asleep. And looking under his arms, he found the letter of confession. He read the letter and he realized what had happened. He paused for a moment, considering what punishment to impose. And then he bent over and he wrote one word on the paper. And he left. Well, eventually, the poor young man woke up, realizing something had gone on, and he fell asleep past midnight. And taking his gun, he prepared to kill himself. And then all of a sudden, he noticed that someone had written something on the ledger. Under his words, a great debt, who can pay? The czar wrote one word. That word was Nicholas. He was dumbfounded and then he was terrified when he realized that someone knew what he had done. Checking his records, he found the signature was genuine. Finally, the thought settled in his mind that the czar knew the whole story and the czar was willing to pay the debt himself. Well, resting on the words of his commander-in-chief, he fell asleep. And in the morning, a messenger came from the palace with the exact amount that the young man owed. Only the czar could pay. And the czar did pay. I want you to know this morning, only Jesus could pay our debt for our sin to God. 
That and that alone explains why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent here for 33 years. Why? So that he could pay in his own blood a debt that we could never pay for our sin. And we stand here this morning precisely where that young man stood. When we look at our sins and realize our hopeless condition, we say a debt, great debt, who can pay? The Lord Jesus Christ steps forward and he signs his name to our ledger and he says, not one word, but to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus could pay and he does. That's why he came. That's the real meaning of Christmas. I know in a week or so you're going to have probably family gathering together to open your gifts. Well, God has a Christmas gift for you. And that Christmas gift is wrapped not in bright paper with fancy bows and ribbons, but it's wrapped in swaddling clothes and it's lying in a manger. It is the gift of his son. It is for you. The gift is still there, but it has to be personally received. I just want to tell you, you can never really enjoy Christmas until you can look in the Father's face and tell him that you have received his Christmas gift. I want to ask you this morning, have you done that? Philip Brooks in his carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, has a stanza that says this, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather here this morning knowing that you have clearly paid the price for our sin. And Father, that that Gift is available to all who would come to you, turn from their sin, lay that burden at your feet, and commit their lives to Christ. Your forgiveness is a free gift. It's free to all who desire it. And yet, Lord, it's something that is done supernaturally. Somehow you work our volition in with your plan. So, Lord, I pray that you would give those the desire to come to you, to claim that forgiveness is freely available, that they could sense the transforming power of Christmas presence among us, of Christ becoming fully human, yet being fully God paying the price for a debt that we could never pay. Pray that as believers we could relate that message to others around us this time of year. As people are out shopping and hustle and bustle is going on, Lord, that somehow that we would inject the reason for this time of year, inject the light of the gospel into a dark and dying world. 
Father, we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.